All right, as we go into this morning's sermon, before we get to the to the sermon itself, I do want to bring up two things. Uh, one is this, there's a, a Gene Hoffman provided me with a great Jonah t-shirt to wear, and I'm gonna wear it next week. So this is your warning that I'll be preaching in a t-shirt next week, so be ready for that. But it's an awesome, awesome Jonah t-shirt. I believe her daughter designed it as part of a Jonah series they were doing in their congregation. So I'll have that on next week and you can see that. Um, Hopefully it fits well. <laughs> second, second thing on a much more uh, serious note, uh, just over a week ago, uh, we lost Bill Schlegel. And so uh, Bill died and uh, they're planning a memorial service uh, in early October. I believe it's gonna be October 1st, um, but that's being planned right now. But uh, I failed to mention that last week and I wanna make sure that everybody knows that that, that Bill did pass and that um, we are continuing to pray and, and, and mourn and grieve along with Sue and the family. And so please pray for them. We'll be praying for them in our, our prayer this morning as well, but also as we get ready uh, for that memorial again, which will be in early, early October. So there's an occasion in uh, one of the Gospels. Actually, it's in multiple of the Gospels, but uh, the... it's kind of wobbly this morning. In Matthew chapter 22, there's an occasion where an expert in the law, an expert in God's instruction, actually uh, at one point uh, steps forward from the ranks of the religious order that he's part of the Pharisees to test Jesus. So you just imagine this person who's called upon uh, to represent uh, his people to challenge Jesus. They're gonna, he's going to really test Jesus out at this moment. And so he steps forward. And this guy, this guy comes forward and, he, and he's got the whammy of a question, right? He's going he's gonna to ask a question of Jesus that's going to expose Jesus for, for who he is or who they all think he is. They're going to try to find out at that moment if Jesus is orthodox enough, right? If his orthodoxy is in order. And so Jesus gives an answer and no one's shocked by it. All these people are in opposition to him. They hear Jesus' answer to that whammy of a question and no one's shocked by the question. Of course, this person steps forward and says to him, which commandment in the law is the greatest, right? And you remember this, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And of course, Jesus's answer passes the test. And the immediate response that's held there, and we see that recorded in scripture, is this. No response. <laughs> it's like, it was like a mic drop happened at that moment, but not in a way that put anybody to shame. It was, oh wow, he answered the way we thought he would answer, or at least the way that we would have answered that same question. His summary was the same as what our summary would have been. But I imagine that it was quite a different response when earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to his followers something different. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on evil and on good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Of course, Jesus here is consistent on this point, even making sure elsewhere that his followers know who they're supposed to love. We see references to enemies elsewhere. We see references to neighbors and how they're to love, the quality of that love 
Matthew 7, the golden rule. Uh, Luke 10, the good Samaritan. Like these are summaries of what it looks like to love our neighbor, to love, to love the so-called enemies uh, that we have in this world. This, of course, is what God is about. It certainly is what Jesus was about. But of course, this way of living is not received with great enthusiasm by persons back then or even now, right? We don't receive with great enthusiasm. And it was the same for Jonah. Jonah was just like us. He was just like the people uh, who would have heard these words from Jesus and said, you want me to do what? How do you want me to do this? Jonah's was exactly the same. So when he entered that vast sea of Nineveh, steps foot on something that is akin to foreign territory, but even more to Jonah, he's setting foot on enemy territory. It was G.K. Chesterton who observed this. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and to also love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. In close, in close, right there you go. Very true, how very true. In close proximity to the ancient empire of Assyria, Israel was neighbor to the people whose famed capital was Nineveh, who we just heard about in chapter three there. But as in the way of empires, as Tacitus would put it, great empires are not maintained by timidity and the Assyrians were no different. Conflict, of course, would ensue and would exist uh, between these, these two people groups and amongst many people groups in that region. In fact, Roger Nam, uh, who's a, a teacher of Old Testament, uh, he talks about one example of the horrors of this kind of conflict that existed between these two peoples when he writes, if you visit the British Museum, you can see a spectacular wall relief that's depicting Assyrian sieges. The famous siege of Lachish shows multiple images of Judeans being impaled and stacks of Judeans' heads. Yes, disembodied heads. They were counted by Assyrian scribes, presumably for paper-head policy, that's an odd policy, with the soldiers. Archaeologists discovered this wall relief in the throne room in Nineveh of the Assyrians. And so this picture, this image of just the, the level of conflict, the level of, of death, uh, the level of horrors that existed between these two people groups and the Assyrians enacting this on this people of Israel. Of course, from that, you would have then a neighbor enemy. You would form here this neighbor enemy. And to, this, to Jonah here, uh, that's the people Jonah's going to. He's literally going to people who are killing his people and want to take his people's land. And making good on his commitments, uh, Jonah goes. His commitment in chapter two, what I have vowed, I will pay. So he heads out and he enters the city with a clear mission, a mission that God has charged him to back in chapter one, which was to go and to preach, namely to go to at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. And for Jonah, that looks like this. Here's what he preaches. 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right? You're going down. You got 40 more days. And then you're gone. And that's his message. He goes, overthrown. That sounds consistent with the tone that one would set who sees their enemy before them. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be overthrown. But why 40 days? Why, why 40 days? You don't like these dudes. Why would you give them 40 days? Like, why would that be built in the message? Why not like Sodom and Gomorrah, something more immediate? How about why not right now? Uh, perhaps, though, the 40 days here mirrors something that uh, some of the commentators have observed here, that this is a typical waiting and testing period in Scripture. 
something akin to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. You see that number 40 in there. Or even Moses is offering supplication before the Lord when the, when the nation creates the golden calf. Uh, what is it? It says it's 40 days and nights. He's before the Lord praying that his people would not be destroyed. And, and we see uh, this type of thing recounted for us in Deuteronomy chapter 9. But whatever the reason, it's clear that the city's days are numbered. Yet there is still space in that number for grace to enter in. There's still space for grace to enter in. That's a curious note to observe here as we read Jonah 3. But even more curious is the response of this people, these, these outsiders, to the prophet's message. The, the pagan nation is not cast as arguing with Jonah. Like you don't see them start going, ah, you wait a second here, sir. We want to talk to you about that. There's nothing like that going on. They're not arguing. They're not justifying their behavior. They're not shown that way. And they're not seen to be seeking to do harm to this prophet, right? We don't see any of that sort of thing in their response. But rather we read in verse five, the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. Hardly the response one might expect from this outsider. But even more, hardly the response we might expect from the powerful, even in this nation, as we read on in verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. So he assumes the same mourning and humility, the same position of repentance that he then goes on to demand of his people. This king's actions are, are followed, like I said, by a proclamation that goes out for this humble posture of fasting, mourning, and repentance to be assumed by humans. But then what's added here in the text is animals as well. The animals are supposed to participate in this as well. It says, all the city turned from their evil ways and from violence that is in their hands. And as we look at this, we could probably say from the immediate context, not just hands, but we could say hoof and paw as well would be in that that grouping. The hope is that God is going to relent, that God is going to somehow intervene in a different way than what's been proclaimed in the message to that point. And that's that's the hope of these folks. And that promised destruction would not become their certain future. But the language here sounds like language we find elsewhere in the scriptures, language that we encounter at different places. In fact, there's a text that oftentimes shows up in Ash Wednesday, Joel chapter two, which sounds the trumpet, literally sounds the trumpet uh, for repentance. And we see this same type of language showing up in Joel two. This nation, this outside nation is assuming the posture that the faithful, the insiders are always called to assume. How is it these outsiders have this insider understanding? How is it that they respond to God's message when clearly God's messenger was shown earlier not to respond faithfully. It's supposed to cause your head to kind of go, huh, what's going on here? There's something here in all that. There's a pattern, of course, that shows up elsewhere in the Old Testament where we find there's a threat of disaster uh, that's then followed by acts of repentance or acts of penitence and then a divine intervention that comes that averts the previously foretold judgment that was to show up or the previous foretold disaster. And this is a picture of repentance that we see throughout the Old Testament, and it repeats itself in a number of different stories and actions that any people, including Israel, would have followed had they been in the crosshairs of looming danger, right? This is the, this is the steps that they would have taken if they were wise to the situation. And like the foreign sailors in chapter one, 
that we had already seen a few weeks ago, these pagan Ninevites do what is entirely appropriate for the moment they find themselves in. There's something in all of this that speaks not only to our common humanity, both insider and outsider, but also God's mission. And in addition to all this, there's a sense here that God is at work both in us and the neighbor, the one that we might have ascribed as enemy. God doesn't play the same games that we like to play with each other. And definitely not the same response we might expect from animals. Now I have a dog at home. He sins a lot. <laughs> There's much to be repented of. But animals, I mean, on a serious note, animals, why are animals lumped into this? Why drag them? They're, they're so, they're, they just go about their business, they do their thing. Uh, we hardly would put moral qualifications on a dolphin, right? We wouldn't be like, yeah, you're a bad dolphin, and uh, you have a really dark streak in you. Maybe killer whales, but not dolphins. But the animals, of course, here would be the recipients of whatever judgment befalls the city. Their masters are going to receive uh, judgment. The animals are going to face that same kind of judgment. And so it's appropriate for the animals to join in in this entire this, this process because they're going, to, they're going to see the consequence of it as well. But here the author is also painting for us a picture of the totality of repentance that's happening in the city. That it is, it is wide stretching. Again, we're not talking about a movie here. We're talking about someone who's writing literature. And so how do they paint the picture for us, for us in our mind's eye to be able to see that this group, this, this city of Nineveh is completely and totally in an act of penitence. It's with man and animal alike. One commentator will note it this way, the morning of great and small, king and commoner, man and beast. So everybody's participating. But again, hearkening back to Joel's prophecy. So Joel chapter two has lots of reference points that are similar to the repentance here. In chapter one of Joel's prophecy, we read of wild animals crying to God amidst the destruction of their water sources and their habitat. That they actually, their cries are going out almost as prayers to God for deliverance, for freedom and safety. So maybe there's a little bit of that in there as well in the imagination that's being tweaked. This imagery creates for us though, a much bigger picture of participation in the suffering of the groaning world. That all creation is groaning and is suffering. In some ways should challenge us to our very souls about the ripple effects of our own participation in evil. That when we ourselves participate in evil acts, that it ripples out from us. And it has consequences that affect not only our brothers and sisters, but also our pets and animals and livestock and wild animals as well. That it's stretched out to all creation and it has impact. And I think we see that in our own day and age. We come to understand that better than we may have in the past. So even the animals here, Don Sackcloth, join the city's chorus, crying out to God. And then the unthinkable happens. The unthinkable thing, the thing that you could not predict if you were an insider and you were going, how would God act in all this? 40 days are coming, let's count them down. God relents, and that's completely unthinkable. Why would God do that? Why would God send a prophet, gobble him up with a fish when he tries to run away and send him back with a message of judgment and then relent in the end? Why would you do that? Such a waste of time a waste of human resources to send someone to train them up, to send them to seminary, to tell them to go proclaim judgment, and then not to follow through. Jonah knew this was a possibility. 
All along, Jonah knows that this could happen. And that's why he fled in the first place. He even names the possibility in his prayer in chapter 2, where he says, deliverance belongs to the Lord. He was thinking of his own deliverance, but that it belongs to the Lord, even for the outsider. Jonah, of course, is the beneficiary of that deliverance from storm, divine anger, from the sea, which would act as judgment in his death, but extended to this hated enemy neighbor, that's too far. Grace is not that amazing for Jonah. It can't go that far. But the scriptures tell us a different story. The New Testament tells us that God so loved the world in John chapter three. In 2 Peter chapter three, we learn that God does not want any to perish, but to come to repentance. That we know within the character of who God is, that there's an invitation, there's a welcome, there's an extension of grace to those even who are still a far way off. And so within the character of God revealed in scripture, we hear in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This relenting quality is not something that's limited to Jonah in the scriptures, but also is seen in Exodus 32, where Moses prays that God would do so, or do as such for God's people amidst their certain guilt. And in Jeremiah chapter 18, God's own words to the prophet confirms that on occasion, when a nation is facing judgment and turns from its evil, it says this in Jeremiah 18, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. But relent may paint the wrong picture for us here in light of the total witness of scripture. More accurate would be that God extends grace out to all creation, extends it by invitation, extends it by action. This past week, Liz Cheney quoted from Abraham Lincoln. Did you see Liz Cheney's concession speech? She quoted Abraham Lincoln. So I felt bold enough that I should quote Abraham Lincoln as well today. Not in my concession speech. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? This is the kind of transformational work that God is up to, that God's mission is going out and doing in this community, in this congregation, and in this world. And even when the prophet may only imagine one course of appropriate destruction to his neighbor enemies, God imagines something quite different and calls us to participate in that different thing. I think most of us know what a bucket list is. Does anybody have a bucket list? Does anybody have, have you made a bucket list? This side here has not. <laughs> this side over here has, but this side is not. You're afraid to admit it. You're afraid to admit it, yeah. I've accomplished nothing on my bucket list. <laughs> but we know that idea, the list of things that you would like to accomplish in life or things that you'd like to see or do uh, before before you die. There's a, there's a movie that came out about, about 2007 or so that came out uh, about bucket list. Um, but those things that we want to do uh, before we die. I, th I think about Jonah being a reverse bucket list, right? The things he doesn't want to do before he dies, right? <laughs> I don't want to go to Nineveh. Now let me jump in the sea, right? <laughs> so kind of a reverse thing. But Jesus invites you and me to a different kind of list in our life. Uh, we're invited not to go. Most bucket lists are filled with all kinds of, I want to climb a mountain or I want to go see a great sight or go visit a friend again or all those sort of things. But Jesus invites us to something different who we might become and what we're invited to be. And hopefully by the time that our work is done here, 
is that we become ones who don't have enemy neighbors, but that we truly embody that, that, that place, that life where we love our neighbors as ourselves, and it becomes an extension of our love of God and our response to God's grace in our life. That we see people before our eyes who can be transformed and are transformed as grace recipients, as they experience God's love, as they experience the relationship together, that that invites them to a different way of living and being, a different way of thinking about who God is, but also thinking about what life could be and how we could live life together. And then we're not startled in those relationships when God's grace peeks through and winks at us and shows up in, in places where we weren't expecting it, but it certainly was within the realm of imagination as we read through scripture. In their life, in our lives, together in the presence of God. I have this uh, friend back east who posted on Facebook a letter that she received. She's a pastor of a congregation and their congregation uh, has uh, have some relationships uh, with uh, folks in their community, including folks who represent other religious traditions. And so they actually have in their church building, uh, they have a Muslim group that's been meeting or meets during Ramadan in for prayer. Uh, and they have this relationship that spans many years. And so they've been using the same church building together, been sharing that uh, with them. And it's created quite an uproar. Um, you imagine you might have in your own heart a little bit of uproar over that. Um, but it created a bit of uproar that so much so that someone wrote a letter, a lengthy letter uh, to her. But this is a group that's that's trying to, I think like many of us, is, is trying to think, how can I inhabit God's grace and be part of God's mission? And where is God calling me to? Now, God may not be calling us to do that sort of thing here at John Knox, but this is the expanding of God's grace, of the experience of who God is, God's love, in a way for us to think through the gospel in even bigger ways, in ways that it transforms our own imagination and thinking, and possibly taking us places tomorrow that we couldn't have imagined doing yesterday. And that's what they're doing. And of course, they're paying the price for it because it's raising some angst and anxiety in people's hearts with that. I wonder what it would be for us. And as we close this morning, I, I want to leave that with us to think about for us as a community, what would be the places that God's pushing us out to, the mission fields that we're being called to step out into, like Jonah, that we don't want to go, that we don't want to be there. And when we are there, we're willing to preach a message of judgment, but we have a hard time when we see God show up with grace in those places. What would be those places for us? Every community has them. Every person has them. There's places where we're stretched in those things. Well, with that in our, in our hearts and minds, I, I want to draw us here again in closing to the Swiss moral philosopher, Henri Frederick Emile, who has, a, has a, a quote that has been adapted into many of Benedictions and stuff, but this quote I think is a remarkable one for us to consider in our own lives. He says this, life is short and we, never, and we have never too much time for gladdening the hearts of those who are traveling the dark journey with us. Oh, be swift to love, make haste to be kind. I think if Jesus were to say the same things, he, Jesus would say to us, friends, love. Go in love, live in love because you've been called in love. May it be so for our generation and for our lives this day and every day. Amen. Let's pray.